0: Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. Administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that.
1: Welcome to high turnout, wide margins. This is Brianna Lennon. We've got my co-host with me today.
2: Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri.
1: And today we have a special guest.
2: My name's uh, Noah
0: Prates, former uh, election director in Cook County, Illinois, and now an uh, election consultant. Working primarily for uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency.
1: And cybersecurity is exactly what we wanted to talk about today and really just kind of give a good overview of um, recommendations that you have, things that that you've done in your career that um, you want to pass on to, you know, the current and next generation of election administrators. We really are excited to have you. Yeah,
2: well, Noah's actually our first guest. So it's a very prominent and prestigious thing to have.
0: It it goes right on top of my list of uh, my CV. This is number one.
1: Hey, you know, we just got notification we're, we're on Spotify and Apple, so we've made it, I guess.
0: The real deal. All right. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Noah, what was your first job in elections? We talked a lot on our first episode about how we fell into it, but how did you find your way into elections administration?
0: Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Everybody kind of falls into it. Nobody really goes out looking for an elections job. So I think I was hungry. Uh, Like literally hungry, I tried a couple different jobs out of college and didn't do either one of them very well. tried to sell computers. Uh, That didn't work. I tried to learn how to trade options at the Chicago Board of Options. That didn't work too well. I bartended a bit and and that worked, but the hours weren't great. So in the lead up to the 2000 election, I found a job uh, doing temp work at the Cook County Clerk's Office, typing in voter registration forms into a database. And uh, it was exciting. Election. What really hooked me, though, was listening to the Supreme Court, uh, Bush v. Gore, and I said, "Okay, this is what I want to do." And uh, signed up to go to law school at night. Found a way to stay on at the clerk's office and did that for 19 years. Worked my way up, did everything in the office, and uh, ran the place for about a decade.
2: That's a great story. Do do you find traveling across the country that most people who are in a position of high responsibility in elections work their way up from the bottom, or or end up there some other way? Yeah, it's,
0: I, I, I wish everybody had sort of worked their way up. And I know that in most of the like small to medium offices, it's sort of irrelevant because uh, they do everything anyway. Like, Brianna, I'm sure you not only do you have other responsibilities uh, outside of elections, but, it, but, but in your shop, I mean, you know how to do everything in the office. And that positions you to make incredible decisions. I think some of the bigger offices, uh, depending on how you come in, you can you can struggle because you're so reliant on, you know, one, two, three, five staff who are experts like this is my absentee expert. And this is my early voting expert. and This is my voter registration expert. And so there are certainly challenges because elections, you've got a, a responsibility for a ton of different things.
1: So when you started, I mean, Cook County falls a lot more in the realm of the St. Louis size than, you know, Boone County were moderately sized. But as you worked your way up, did it fall into that kind of category? Were you an expert in certain things until you finally just kind of got interested in so many different pieces of it that you wanted to, to oversee the whole thing?
0: Yeah. Uh, so I guess I was a little hungry and uh, ambitious. So I tried to go wherever the problem was. For example, after the 20, after the 2000 election, you know, everybody was examining punch cards in Florida. Well, we had a tremendous fall off rate in Cook County. And so we did a big analysis and we had just switched from like 312 punch cards to 456. And we had a disparate impact depending on uh, different parts of the county. We we're trying to get to the, to the bottom of what it was. Ultimately, our analysis said that one version of the punch cards from our vendor had a different like, tolerance level than, than a different one. And it just so happened that the way we laid it out hit different parts of the county differently. So doing that kind of analysis is fun and exciting. And then you get to write the report and all of a sudden people turn to you if you're adding value when the next crisis comes. And so like my career was all about finding opportunities for improvement or responding when there were crises. So like almost immediately, my my next cool project was saying, wait a minute, we have 1.6 million voters. We got 300 people on the phones on election day, 2,500 precincts, and we're still writing down on a piece of paper every call we get in triplicate form. And then you're running the triplicate up to the director's office, who's supposed to somehow read them all and find pattern recognition and get some sense of what's going on out there. So he said, no, let's build a database to track this, like a command center, so that the people in leadership positions have full visibility on what's going on in the county. So we, you know, quickly developed a a call form that was web-based. And so as soon as, you know, 2003, we were tracking everything centrally. There are were, there were just always little opportunities if you keep your eyes open in this field for improvement. So for people that are you know, curious and, and hungry and looking to make the, the field better, there's no better place than, than elections because the cream
2: rises to the top pretty quick. I think that's a great segue into what we want to talk about today, because so much of the improvement that you just described really hinges on technology and automating the call database that you mentioned things like that you know in our office just within the last 5 years you know we've gone from paper poll books to electronic poll books like so many offices across the country and asset management that it's all web based now call management's all web based so into it at least in my case into an office that was very paper based just a few years ago to being much more automated than we were it increases our risk exposure uh, does it not and And what kind of challenges does that, new challenges does that present for election officials? And what we want to know today is what what we need to be on the lookout for and what we learned in 2020. What steps do we need to take moving forward now that so many election offices have automated things like that?
0: Yeah, I look forward to talking about security a little more broadly than just cyber. But to hit your first point, there's no question to meet our voters' demands, uh, to meet our own demands for information and efficiency. We're all, election officials are all relying on a ton of digital services. You've got your voting systems, which are by and large pretty well, safely stowed away and, and off the internet, and so harder to get to from somewhere overseas or in some uh, some basement somewhere. But all the other services you just talked about, poll books, sort of web-based uh, command center, ticketing systems, you know, the mail ballot scanning systems uh, that, you know, that scan the envelopes, the statewide voter registration databases, these things all have a heavy internet footprint. And so while they do make our lives easier, they do increase risk significantly. And I think what we've learned over the past uh, few years is you can do some things to protect it, but even looking at solar winds right now, you can do all the right things and still not perfectly protect it. So we're in a position of not only using the primary digital system, uh, we're also got all these backups. Uh, Yeah, we got e-pull books, but we also print a paper list. goes out to uh, the precinct. We've got this automated database, but if that goes down, we've also got printed out forms that you can fill out. And so we have realized we've always got to be able to check down when plan A or plan B doesn't work.
1: You were talking about several generations of uh, voting machines and technology when you first started. As you were working on implementing all these new technologies and things like that, how did you kind of balance what's the risk versus reward of implementing a technology and having to have that backup? Like, is there a certain point where you go, I could introduce technology to fix this problem, but maybe if the backup works just fine, we should continue doing that. Like, was that part of the calculus as you were um, looking at new technologies and implementing changes into the process?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I was scarred with a tough rollout of a new voting system in 2006, which I managed. And we were going from punch cards to a combination of optical scan and touchscreen with VPAT. And those like that was the same time that everybody in the country was doing it. And we did it. And we made some assumptions about how quick the results would come in. We didn't meet expectations of the press or the public. Uh, And we got raked over the coals. And you know, learned a lot about uh, project management one, but also risk management two. And so ever since that point, we, I never did a cutover of any technology 100%. So when we introduced electronic poll books, we tested them in hundred precincts and then we tested them in 400 and we were ready to go to 800, uh, but realized, okay, this has passed all of our tests. We can go ahead and go full out but that comes with extra costs you've got two sets of judges training one for folks that are doing e-poll books and one that are still doing paper the return on the investment in the poll books isn't as high as it would be otherwise because you're still printing paper uh poll books so so there are some other calculations that you not you need to build in like if if you're going to continue to have paper backups like the return on the technology investment isn't as high. It's hard to make a business case for some of these technologies when you realize that you've got to have a full you know, paper-based uh, backup. Um, but it does also make you think about how you manage these transitions. We bought a new voting system that we started rolling out the year that I left and we did it the same way. We're going to do 250 pre seats and see how it goes just so that we can learn learn some lessons, make sure our assumptions and expectations are right, Um, but that makes these kind of projects
2: uh, more expensive. So one question I have, Noah, now since you've transitioned from your role in Cook County to your consultant role, one thing I find interesting, I see in Missouri a lot of pretty small counties have adopted things like electronic poll books and maybe some other things. Now that, now since 2016 and the foreign interference in elections and a new emphasis on physical and cyber security. I know from time to time when I see emails and updates from CISA and from our Secretary of State's office and things, it can seem overwhelming. How can I possibly accomplish all these things? I can only imagine what it would be like for somebody with a staff of one or two people also trying to implement these things. What, what have you seen out there in your consultant role and from your experience, how does a relatively small election office manage best practices around some of these new technologies? That's a great
0: question. It is the, that's the hardest thing to crack in this like really uh, diffuse election administration environment because they just simply aren't the human resources to do like a lot of the basics. And so that's, that's been the biggest struggle, I think, for, for everybody. And it's not just in elections. I think it's small government and small business trying to determine what the probability of attack is, what the consequences are, where is this a place where we should invest finite resources? The hard, the hard part is <laughs> you look at an election like 2020, and I like to talk about election security as protecting two virtues kind of truth and trust and it is true that this was a secure election and well run but it's also true that that hasn't equated to you know universal trust in it and so how how do you build trust in elections and election systems so that folks you know pass along not just like power with victory but also near universal uh, legitimacy and so that's the other, sort of major issue that that we've got to crack uh, as an industry. I, I mean, you're never going to get 100% people trusting that the election was well, both secure from a physical and a cyber um, sense, but also from an operational sense. But what you can do, I think, is we can all, as an election administrators or formers or people that help in this game, recognize that there are opportunities to increase trust, and that most Americans are gonna look at this thing um, willing to be convinced, even if all aren't. And so that we, you know, looking after 2020, our lesson is let's explore every avenue of increasing trust, uh, the trust of our electorate in our business, accepting the fact that we're not gonna get everybody, you know, and not accepting the, the premise that this was somehow insecure or thrown election, but accepting that there are opportunities for improvement that will increase trust. And, and in doing so, it will also increase security.
1: I think that's a really good point. And uh, one of the things that I have, well, I know I have struggled with, and I'm sure other people have, have struggled with this as well is the, the balance between security and transparency what goes into providing confidence in how the election is run in the first place of you, um, especially oh. it, you know, after this election, how do you feel about that tension?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I think transparency is the entire ballgame game um, at this point. And I don't think it comes down to, I think there's so much low hanging fruit there that we don't even need to talk about. So if you're going to do hash comparisons, right. Or forensic analysis on voting system versions, that's saying you do that, that's, that's enough. I don't think you need to go into how exactly that works. I think that the low hanging fruit um, from a transparency perspective is most important because somebody with a huge microphone can tell a story about your election and, and people will believe it. But if the people on the ground will vouch for you, you know, if they're validators of your efforts because they saw it all, that goes a long way to cutting through kind of false narratives about your business. So, you know, I've talked to people and was in cities in this election uh, where there were allegations that people weren't there. It wasn't transparent. They weren't able to observe, you know? And I was in a room where there were 200 of the minority party in the area under the supervision of local attorneys who were in the room. And that made all the difference. You, you can't stop the meta-narrative that comes out, but if you can keep folks engaged, recognizing your stakeholders, the most important people in your business are those who you know would be suspect of what you're doing. So generally that's the sort of minority party in your area. If you can keep them, those stakeholders uh, engaged, If you can keep them happy, if you can keep them informed, uh, then that's probably the best that that you're going to be able to do. And I think if all of us looked at our business, we would recognize that there are opportunities to increase the transparency and buy-in from local stakeholders
2: uh, that can validate our work when it's under attack. I know in my case, when we've had recounts, I've brought in uh, representatives of the opposing campaigns in the recount and had them participate in the recount process and like you said it instilled a lot of uh, faith and trust in what they saw and they they ended up being advocates for the process and for us so I think your suggestion is really good do you have any other kind of nuts and bolts type suggestions uh, from your recent experience for for local administrators the kind of transparency steps they can take
0: yeah, I, I, so I would, I would engage in an exercise like the following. Sit down with your team for a few hours and write out the like post-election press release that says, this is why you can trust our elections. In the cyber domain, we do A through Z, right? And that could be, we have our website tested by DHS, CISA, or somebody else, you know? So you can rely on our election night uh, reporting, or we've had our entire system uh, penetration tested by CISA or somebody else. In the physical realm, you know, we've had folks come out and make recommendations on how we secure our facilities better. And we followed through on some of those. Interesting right now is, I think, operational security. You know, we all watched for a week as ballots were being counted around the country and you would see those rooms uh, full of ballots being moved. And you know there are best practices for ways to do that, to ensure that you can follow a ballot from cradle to grave. You know, We shipped it out in this container that had this seal on it. That seal number was validated, Your basic chain of custody stuff. It was counted, all the ballots were counted on election day, the judges signed it. They sealed it with this seal number. That package came back to us, it had the same seal number when it got back and it was locked in this room by these people. There, there are ways to prove like using evidence that the material handling was appropriate. You could tell that story a little bit better, I think. And you get those stakeholders in there. Um, and by, by, by writing the press release, I guess, or the election security report, you can identify gaps. Ooh. There are things that we could do better that we're not. And so the challenge, I think, in the next four years is for election officials everywhere to find some of those gaps and to commit to filling them, to doing them a little bit better. So whether it's things like multi-factor authentication on all, all election systems or you know, using Patch Tuesday to, to update all your systems and make sure that old vulnerabilities uh, don't come up to bite you or whether it's like running through your chain of custody and documentation procedures or bringing somebody in with a trained eye who can watch your municipal election and say, wow, you know, that's a place where you could use some documentation or that's a place where I just wouldn't leave your ballots out here like this. I'd put them back here in a cage. And when somebody wants to finally scan that batch, have them sign this sheet. I mean, there, there are just so many, I guess, low cost best practices, but what election officials should do is sort of line out everything they're doing now to instill confidence and then pick up places where,
2: you know, where there are some gaps that they could do, they could do better on. One program I found pretty interesting was at least the construction of it, the Cyber Navigator Program in Illinois. I've heard you talk about it before. and I know, I think at least you... Were somewhat instrumental in bringing it to fruition in one way or another. So I have two questions for you. One, can you explain how that program came into being, and you know what role you played in it? And two, how successful, if at all, do you think it's been? Um, I, I have a feeling that it's something that would especially benefit smaller jurisdictions that you know might need a little extra guidance. And maybe three. I know I said two, but maybe three. Could could a program like that be expanded? to encompass some of the things you just mentioned, to also recommend to locals, hey, you might also want to firm up your chain of custody, your documentation processes, things like that. Could you expound upon that?
0: Yeah. So this gets back to the point that I think you were making earlier, which is, you know, Boone can probably absorb uh, many of these things uh, or or some, but like those counties that are 10 or 15, 20 or 50,000 voters that have just a a handful of staff. What they're required to do right now is just, it's sort of ridiculous. Protect your systems from foreign adversaries. Like, give me a break. Uh, Run unimpeachable elections um, in the face of like, people who will say they were thrown uh, no matter what. Um, It's just a tremendous burden. And so the idea here is, using force multipliers. So what happened in Illinois was we were the epicenter of this attack on the statewide voter registration database in 2016. Congress ponied up a bunch of money. It was 13, $14 million in Illinois. And Illinois' original plan was to distribute that on a, uh, primarily to locals on a voter registration basis. So we had 108 election authorities at the time. My election authority, Cook County, would have accounted for maybe 25% of the state's voters. So we would have got 25% of that money, somewhere in the range of $3 million, and maybe 25 dollars or $50,000 would be going to 80 counties, and they've got the same mission. I mean, I, I may have more voters and more equipment, but we both have websites. We both have warehouses, right? So to me, it didn't seem that it was going to do much to protect the security of the whole. And so we advocated for a cyber navigator program. And the idea there was to hire a handful of people, each of whom would take some responsibility for a number of counties, right? So you would grab 10 counties in your area and you would be the person to help them sign up for the free services from CISA, because they can be free, but if you don't have time for them, right, or time to do it, uh, nothing—you know nothing's really free. Uh, time is the uh, is a thing that's always fleeting, something in elections that we always need more of. So the cyber navigators, we, we got into law, we got the entire clerks association to uh, accept it. Even the big counties who stood to lose a significant amount of grant money recognized that for the good of the whole, it made uh, most sense and so the navigators will do that exact type of stuff they'll come in and help with basic assessments they'll come in and help uh, work to procure free services from CISA or from the state or from uh, other entities if the state or the state's election authority decides they want to invest in a private vendor the navigator would help manage that interface Because small counties rely so much on the county's I.T., you know, they would also help build those internal partnership relationships. And I do think it's been very successful here in Illinois. Um, And I think it's the only type of model that is sustainable because, you know, originally I had thought, hey, let's buy every election official their own like election security officer but you run that by 8800 you know at 100 grand a year and pretty soon you've bankrupted the amount of money that's going to come out from the federal government and frankly you don't need that much firepower because there's so much low hanging fruit but if you but if you do this model kind of state based support to your local election officials it's fully sustainable and you can move the ball forward on all of the basic best practices and so i do think that We've got kind of four domains that we need to be talking about election security in, and you know one of them is traditional cyber. the uh, The other is physical, you know, uh, your your facilities, and that's pretty linked to to cyber. You know, your first mitigation or defenses are to prevent people from getting getting access either physically or uh, remotely. But then we really need to be thinking about our operational uh, security are we doing the best practices for moving uh, materials and and people about so that we can record that information and demonstrate with evidence that allegations made against us are are patently false and and that we can prove it a little more successfully than maybe we have thus far this election. And then finally, communications. We are not passive bystanders in like democracy anymore. Um, It is clear that there are Potentially anti-democratic forces who put election officials now in the center of the arena. You know, we at one point we were maybe referees or I don't know the grounds crew that just sort of made sure that the game could be played. I think we have to recognize that election officials now play a more central role in communicating the rules, uh, why it's fair, uh, presenting evidence, uh, so that those folks that may be suspect have something really solid to rely on. Um, And so communications now, I think is going to be one of the big growth or uh, opportunity areas for election officials um, and how they talk about and present evidence that elections
2: were secure from a cyber or physical or an operational perspective. So I think it's almost like full circle uh, on that last point, Noah. It's just like the new technology. So now we have this, this communication piece we have to be better at, frankly. How do we do it? Do we need communication navigators in addition to cyber navigators? I mean, what, what, what can be done? It just seems like one more thing, you know, that yeah. we we'll do have to worry about now. Well, I mean, I think,
0: I think we did a tremendous job this election biggest success was probably in resetting expectations. It was clear to the entire country in February and March and April that voters were going to shift towards mail voting or absentee voting. And in almost every state, they did so in record numbers. Some states, uh, legislatures changed the rules, uh, certainly in the primary season. But even where the rules didn't change, voters gravitated towards that. Uh, to protect themselves. And that came with implications. Election officials realized that in some states, based on the processing rules, that that would have significant impacts on presentation of election results, of the unofficial results. And so as early as May and June and July of this year, you heard officials you know, arguing for policy changes that would prevent results from changing dramatically after election night by letting folks count earlier, but recognizing that those legislative changes weren't coming, they started talking and communicating what the new expectations were. And so I think everybody in the country knew that, you know, that results could be impacted. The presentation of unofficial election results could be impacted on election night and the day after and the day following. And if they hadn't successfully communicated it, I think we'd be in a very different place right now. But voters were braced, you know, the expectations were reset. And even though it continues to be a point of contention, uh, the populace writ large sort of understood it in advance, recognized why it, it, it was gonna happen and then why it did happen and baked it into their understanding of elections. And so I think that's a great example of what we do to sort of change the, or to manage the public perception, because I mean, that's probably the biggest challenge we've got right now. I think truth in elections is, is pretty well covered. I mean, we've got to continue to, to up our game, but trust in elections is a challenge. And so you know, or managing the perceptions of our business is probably the sort of biggest challenge we've got over the next four years. I don't think it means bringing in a professional, uh, necessarily. But what I do think it means is you write your press release. You, you break down what your business is, and you s- start to talk to the press uh, and your public about why you can trust elections. This is I do all these things in the sober realm. I do all these things in the physical realm. I do all these things in the operational realm. You found a, a good way to talk about it, to share the information. You pull in those stakeholders, that sort of minority party in the area, hold them as close as you can because they will be your strongest validators, you know, if and when you need them. And I do think we can accomplish this over the next two and four years.
1: The communication piece is really interesting because there are so many avenues to communication that I wonder if you have an opinion on. We saw so much disinformation shared on social media, but. That's also where a lot of people were engaging in discussions about how elections were run in the first place, because I think a lot of election administrators saw that that's where voters were. So they tried to meet them on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram uh, to varying levels of success, I think. Uh, But I wonder if you have an opinion on the avenues of communication that might be most successful.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, if you look where campaigns spend their money, it's, I mean, TV is best. Obviously, none of us are going to afford that. Uh, direct mail is second best. We can't really uh, afford that, but there are certainly opportunities. You know, when you mail out your every other year NCOA card, right, your your canvas mailings, your there are opportunities where you've already got to do mailings where you can use that those funds to also start to shape the understanding of uh, your elections office or, or why things are trustworthy. It's true, Twitter is very, it's deceiving, you know, 15 to 20% of adults are on there. I don't think they all engage like we do in the sort of elections Twitter, but it can distort, right? It becomes a bit of an echo chamber. And my sense is, even though it's really loud and can be quite negative in Twitter, I think the public writ large has got a different perception of what happened or what's happening in this election and are much more confident than uh, you would think if you just looked at, at Twitter. But there's no question, you do gotta try to meet folks where they are. The social media benefits are that it's cheap you know, and free, but it also is a place where, where the discourse can become toxic pretty quick. And election officials certainly gotta be careful not to engage in the toxicity.
1: Well, thank you for being our first guest, because, you know, you can't have a good show if you don't have anybody that wants to come on to it. So I really do appreciate it. I don't know what it's going to turn into, but we're Eric and I are very excited to be doing this and we're totally nerding out about it. (laughs) Well,
0: (laughs) the states play a great role in elections. The state leadership is evidenced by the last two months on television. Um you know, take a lot of incoming fire and they can absorb it better than a lot of us, like county administrators, uh, and they can throw some lead blocks for us. But at the end of the day, local election officials are the ones who manage elections. They're the ones that are actually trusted by voters. You know, they turn to local officials before they turn to state and way before they turn to Washington um when they want good information And so I, I would really like to see local election officials with a stronger not necessarily saying like lobbying arm but, uh, but maybe that's it I mean with a bigger seat at at the table and certainly no no offense uh, to, to smaller counties but I think the logistical challenges of big cities and and counties certainly in this, environment where voters are kind of self-polarizing and it's easy to pick on one city in a state and all of a sudden you're like picking on a majority of their voters. The dynamics are so much different. And so I just would love to see local election officials somehow kind of step up and have a larger national presence as as a group. Um, because that's where all the work is done. That's where all the trust in elections lies. That's where all the risk lies as well. I love NAS and NASAD and their well-run organizations, um, and they've got a strong presence, obviously like Election Center and IGO, but I would really love to see election officials from the local level have a, a presence with the gravitas similar to NAS or NASAD, protecting you know, local election officials' interests
2: everywhere that they can that's a good place to end it's like a mic drop like uh you guys need to step up that's good so everybody thanks for tuning in to another exciting episode of high turnout wide margins and thanks so much to our first guest no prates for joining us and hopefully you'll tune in next time for another very exciting episode